0: Well, good morning. It's a delight to be with you, as I've said, and it really is. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20, to Luke chapter 20, where we'll continue there, and Luke 20, verse 19, as we consider Jesus in the temple and his interactions with the religious leaders. While you're finding your place, let me say a few words of introduction. This morning, I want to begin with a brief grammar lesson, especially for the children see, whenever you learn a language, not your native language, which you learn by listening to your parents, but if you begin to learn a new language, one of the first things you learn to say is, I am, or you are. You learn to use these verbs that indicate a state of being. And so if you're learning Spanish, you learn to say, yo soy, or French, je suis, or if you were learning Greek, you would learn to say, ego, a me. These are ways of saying I am, and you can apply that, of course, to all sorts of different persons or things. And yet, as we become comfortable with our language, these words come to us sort of like throwaway terms that we gloss over, we ignore them. In fact, I had an English teacher in high school who forbid us from using statements like there is or there are to begin a sentence because they were simply boring. And yet, sometimes, These words have a profound insight in them, which I try to remind my children when they come to me and say, I am hungry, and I say, well, hungry, it's nice to meet you, because I am a dad, therefore I must tell dad jokes. (laughs) Statements of being, however, can be quite profound. They indicate that something is or is not. And so in our literature in the English language, We remember the words from Shakespeare's play, Hamlet. As Hamlet says, to be or not to be, that is the question. Because he's wrestling with whether or not he really wants to go on with all the pain and the tragedy that he's endured. Or we think of the words of the philosopher, Descartes, I think, therefore, I am. Or even more profound, yet far more, infinitely more profound. We think of God's word when he revealed himself to Moses. He said, by what name shall I tell the people uh, I was sent? God says, I am who I am. And we think of Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. Or simply, before Abraham was, I am. Well, this text that's before us this morning is filled with statements like this that indicate that something really is or something is not really the case. We see it's filled with what is, what seems to be, but is not, and what has been and what will be. And in the midst of this, controversies arise as the religious leaders come to Jesus and they confront him because they failed to reckon with life as it really is. And so they stood in opposition to the one who is and was and ever will be. They rejected him for who he really is. And they pretended to be what they were not. So they denied God's promises for what they really are. But Jesus demonstrated His supreme wisdom because He truly understood the way things really are. He saw through their fiction to what these opponents truly were. And He called them to believe and to submit to God, who is God, and to His Son, who is Lord. This text, likewise, calls us to believe also in what is and what will be and the one who makes it so and to live our lives in light of these realities. So if you found your place in verse 20, would you follow along with me as I read to the end of the chapter? Not to the end of the chapter, but to 44. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, "'The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage.'" For all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Father in heaven, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see what is, what always has been, and what will be, even as we sang, recognizing that oftentimes in this life, what we see on the face of things may seem so difficult and so hard to endure, but behind it there is a truth that you, our sovereign God, smile with a with joy kindness and mercy that you will give us and that you intend to show to us, even though we face that frowning providence so often in our lives. And so we pray, Lord, that through this word, through this text, you would open our eyes to see things as they truly are and to hope in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. As we look at this text, it breaks down into three sections. There are three controversies. The first, where people come to Jesus and ask him a question, and the final one, where Jesus raises a question himself. And each one begins with a similar use of that to be verb. It's not quite apparent in translation, but it always uses the infinitive. What I mean is that when we say to be or not to be, we're using the infinitive. We're taking the verb and we use it like a noun, and we're considering the idea of being. And if you look at the text, you see that in verse 20, that those who were sent by the scribes and chief priests watched him and sent spies, and what did they do? They pretended to be sincere. That word sincere could be translated as righteous. I don't doubt that sincere appropriately captures the meaning, but it does uh, cause us not to see the connection. Here are people pretending to be righteous, just like so many earlier in Luke's gospel have thought themselves to be righteous. And yet they were only self-righteous and not really righteous at all. And these individuals are pretending to be something they are not. And then we come to verse 27 and we see some Sadducees, which we'll talk about later. But they come and Luke tells us that they deny there is a resurrection. Or to put it another way, they deny there to be a resurrection. That such a thing as a resurrection will ever come to place. So we have people pretending to be what they are not. We have people denying what really is. And then finally, Jesus will raise a question to the people that are listening to Him about the Christ. All agree in His context that the Christ is the Son of David or to be the Son of David. They all would identify Christ to be the Son of David as a way you could think about it. And yet David calls him Lord. And this introduces a problem because sons don't typically call their fathers Lord in that context or in ours. And so you see that there are controversies over what is and what is not. And in the first controversy, what we're going to see is that we are God's image bearers. We are made in His image. So God is our God. Therefore, we have freedom but we also have a responsibility to Him and to those whom He might permit to be in authority over us. We are God's image bearers, and God is our God. Therefore, we have freedom and a responsibility. Look at this text as the controversy unfolds. It begins with a question about taxes. Those who are watching Him, those who... Uh, They sent spies, and those spies are pretending to be righteous or pretending to be sincere, but really, they're playing the hypocrite. That word, pretended to be, could be rendered, played the hypocrite. They're, They're putting on a face, like an actor, pretending to be something they're not, because what they really intend to do, the real truth of what's going on, is they want to catch him in something he might say, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. You see, what has happened was that they they already want to seize him. We remember that from verse 19 of this chapter, how the scribes and chief priests sought at that very moment to lay hands on him, but they were afraid of the people. They knew the crowds were with him, and they did not want to face the wrath of the crowds. And so they wanted to find another way around this problem, and maybe the Romans would do their dirty work for them. They could catch him in something he might do. Maybe they'll get him to say, you don't have to pay taxes. Well, how will the Romans feel about someone gaining a following and saying, you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar? They'll get rid of him real quick and do the dirty work for these guys. That's what they're trying to do. So they ask him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. The thing is that they they speak rightly. They identify a truth about Jesus here, but as true hypocrites, they don't really mean it. They're not sincere. They don't really believe these things. But they're trying to flatter Jesus in order to get into His good graces and maybe trip Him up and entrap Him in some way. You teach rightly. You speak rightly. You don't, you're not partial, literally. You don't accept faces. Is a Hebrew way of speaking. You don't, you don't do things or say things in order to please people. But you simply say the truth and you speak plainly. And So they ask Him, Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? They're not asking, is it lawful in accordance with the laws of Rome or some other nation? They're asking in accordance with the law of Moses, the law that we were given by God. Is this lawful? And to understand this problem that they're presenting before him, it's helpful to understand some of the context of the way people thought about the tribute or the taxes that they were required to pay to the Romans who ruled their society. You see, there were some who were zealots. They would have been like revolutionaries. And they would have had a a following among the people just like Jesus. And they would have wanted the Messiah, they would have expected the Messiah to lead a revolution and to overcome the Roman authority and reinstitute that physical kingdom of God that they saw, that they remembered from the time of David. That's what they were looking for. And in their zeal, these zealots wanted to start that revolution. And part of that was saying, We're not going to pay the taxes. They would have wanted Jesus not to say, or to say it's not lawful, it's not right. Now, they could have justified this, and some at the time did justify this with concerns about the Second Amendment. As we'll see, the coin has an image on it, an image of a man who is a Caesar, an emperor, and that man claimed to be divine in some sense and demanded worship. And so the question arises, are you breaking the Second Commandment by having a graven image of someone who is worshipped idolatrously? Maybe we can't have that money. And if we can't have that money, then we can't pay the tax. People would have said that at the time. And so you see that if Jesus said things in order to please people, then he might say, don't pay the taxes because he wanted to please the crowds. Or if he feared the Romans and the wrath that they might show him, he might do what a politician does today when they're asked a question is to answer the question that they want to answer, not the question that they're asked. Is that not what, we, what our politicians do and are trained to do in order to avoid stepping on any kind of landmine and upsetting anybody? So there's a political concern in the problem they set before him. They don't really care what he thinks about whether it's lawful. They care about whether or not they can somehow put him in bad standing, either with the Romans or with the crowds. Then they can do what they want to. But Jesus sees right through them in verse 23. He perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, Show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have. In doing that, he exposed their hypocrisy. They couldn't claim any second commandment concerns. Jesus doesn't have a denarius. They've got it. That would just be a, a facade, a fake. So he says, bring it to me, and they're able to supply it. They know whose image is on it. And he says, as he exposes their hypocrisy, and he asks them whose image is on it, they say it's Caesar's. And he says, then give it back. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. and Render to God what is God's. It's helpful to understand the way that people in that time thought about a person's image. All the way back to ancient times, long before the coming of Christ, a ruler, an emperor, would indicate... His domain, his dominion, his rule by establishing images of himself. We have some of these images in museums now. But they would have established these images in places they conquered. And so everywhere you see that image, you know he is the ruler. And so every time you pull a coin out of your pocket and there is stamped on that coin, Caesar's image, you know I am under Caesar's dominion where I am. And we do that today, even though we put dead people on our money. You pull out a dollar from your wallet and you see George Washington on that dollar and you know I am in the United States of America. You see? And so that image conveyed dominion. And because Caesar's image was stamped on that coin, Jesus says, so give it back to him. You see, what really motivates questions like this in their day and in ours? Is it that we're really concerned about keeping the second commandment is it that they're really concerned about honoring God and not having any graven images in their possession? No, it's that people love money. People hate taxes. But no one ever simply justifies not paying taxes by saying, I just don't want to. Some people do that today. But usually you find loopholes and you, you, uh, you say, well, everybody cheats a little on their taxes and you, you write something off and justify it that way. But why? Because you think it's not lawful to pay the taxes? Or because you say taxation is theft? No, because you just don't want to. You want the money. And I'm not accusing anyone in particular here. I'm just saying that's the way that people think in our day. And it's the way that people thought back then. And Jesus is exposing this too by showing a kind of carelessness about the money. It's just, it's just a coin. It belongs to Caesar. Give it back to him. Who cares? Because Jesus doesn't live his life as someone who depends upon money. He's one who lives his life as someone who depends upon his heavenly father. It belongs to Caesar. It's just a piece of metal. Give it back to him. But he doesn't stop there. He says something profound as well. Give to to God what is God's. Give to God the things that are God's. And when we think about that idea of an image, we ought to think then too of God's image. And where is God's image stamped? All the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26, what does God say when he finishes creating everything else in all creation and he comes to the creation of man? Let us make God excuse me, let us make man in our image and likeness. And so everywhere you go in this whole wide earth, when you see a human being, what do you see but the image of God stamped upon that person? And what does that say about his dominion? Everywhere. Complete, universal. Or when they stand before Jesus, who himself is the perfect image of God. The very Son of God, as Hebrews 1 says, the exact imprint of his nature. And they're looking in the face of one who bears in himself the image of God. And he says, give to God the things that are God's. We owe him everything. We owe him our allegiance. We owe him our worship. We owe him all the honor that he is due and they're not doing that to Christ. They're not doing that with their money. And yet what Christ is calling them to see is these truths about ourself, ourselves in relation to God give us both a kind of freedom and a kind of responsibility. It gives us a freedom because if we are gods and then, then he is our God. We can trust him to provide for all of our needs. We can trust that he will care for us and he will provide for us and so we can have a kind of carelessness towards money. I don't mean to go and just frivolously spend all that you have, but I mean that if you should lose something unexpectedly or some kind of calamity should come upon you, you can look at it like we sang in that hymn. that Behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. God is working in mysterious ways, and it's just money. I didn't come into life with it. I won't go out of life with it. As a A friend of mine who recently passed away, a wealthy man said, I came into this world naked, and I realize now I'm going out of it naked as well. But he had this. He had faith in Christ, and he was clothed with the righteousness of Christ. There's a wonderful testimony, kind of carelessness that he had learned through all of his possessions. That's what Jesus models here. Why? Because he calls us to see that we are made in God's image. Therefore, we are his, and he is ours. So we can live a kind of, with a kind of freedom in this life as a result. But we also have an obligation. We have an obligation to our Lord who made us in whose image we are made to give Him all worship and all praise and all honor. In our context, this is a truth that has important ramifications, especially in the political realm. We're into an election year this year. And we are called by Scripture to recognize, as we think about these things, the legitimacy of human institutions, but also their limits. Turn over with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We looked at this text last week. Hold your place in Luke and turn to 1 Peter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, Peter wrote and instructed Christians how they ought to live in relation to governing authorities which were instituted by God. And in verse 13 and following, he says this, "...be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or Caesar as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free." not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. What is he doing there but calling the people to submit to the rule of Rome, not because they consider Caesar to be their Lord, but because they consider Christ to be their Lord, and they see it as a way of submitting to Christ, who in his sovereignty has ordained that Rome should rule for a time. In the context of Peter. And for us that the United States should be our government for a time and for who knows how long, if for another thousand years or for another ten. But it is our government and we submit to it as is appropriate in our context. But that doesn't mean we give all to our government. For the same Peter in Acts chapter 4, verse 19. In Acts 4, verse 19 and 20. After he and John had been arrested, and he stood before the council in Jerusalem. They charged him and John, saying, Do not preach any more in the name of Jesus Christ. They demanded something they did not have authority to demand. And the same Peter recognized that they did not have authority to command him in this way. And so, Peter, recognizing that in this context, it was necessary for him to disregard what they had said, said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter knew he had an obligation to the Lord to share the gospel, regardless of what human authority said. And so we see both the legitimacy of human institutions in Peter's words in 1 Peter, but also the limits of human institutions in Acts chapter 4 from Peter's mouth. And he learned this from Jesus, from texts like the one before us. We can apply it then in our context. we think about taxes, we may not like them. I surely don't. My children asked me how I vote. Earlier this week, I talked about taxes. But I pay them. They're right to pay. We have a duty to pay them. It's not just taxes. We have a duty to honor those who are in authority in ways that are appropriate in our kind of government. Now Jesus would look at these things as a really small thing. Losing some money to taxes. So what? My God richly provides for all I need. But he wants us also to see what is really urgent. That is urgent to serve the Lord as our ultimate authority, our ultimate ruler. And what that means is that we don't cede to the government that which they might demand. What would that look like in our context? As I said, this is an election year. And there's a Tuesday in November that is upcoming when everyone will go to the polls. There are other days coming up when people will go to the polls to vote in primaries. And there are many days when people will advocate for a policy or for a politician and speak like that. But there is a day called the Lord's Day, and it is the Lord's Day. They can have their Tuesday in November. They can have every other day, but they cannot have this day when we gather to worship our Lord. So often, times like this, people compelled by a sense of urgency at the moment will come to pastors or others and say, what we need to do is put aside the preaching of the Word of God for the moment, and we need to focus on what is urgent, convincing other people to vote in a certain way or to support a certain kind of policy. I say again, they can have their Tuesday and their other days, but this is the Lord's Day, and we don't gather for that. We gather to worship our God We gather to honor Him as Lord. We can have a kind of careless attitude when we do that to those other things. For He's in control, and He will work all things according to the counsel of His purpose, according to His wisdom. And when we are here, we worship Him. That's how we apply the truths that Jesus sets before us here. We are made in His image. He has stamped it upon us. We serve the one who is the perfect image of our Lord, of our God, Jesus Christ, and so we honor him with what is his. Well, the people couldn't answer Jesus. He demonstrated supreme wisdom. And the people marveled. They became silent. But the Sadducees tried to catch him after that. Now, the Sadducees, a few things you need to know about the Sadducees. They were a group that are they're kind of like a opposite of the Pharisees. What the Pharisees believed, generally the Sadducees did not believe. The Sadducees denied the resurrection, Luke tells us. They denied a lot of things. The Pharisees believed in all the books of the Old Testament, Genesis through the book of Malachi, which we find in our Old Testament. They also believed in an oral tradition as being the Word of God. The Sadducees didn't believe in any of that, just Genesis through Deuteronomy. Just the first five books. And because in those five books they did not see any references to resurrection. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels and demons. They didn't believe in a lot of things. And so they come as pretend, pretenders, pretending to be something they're not as well. For they deny that there is to be a resurrection, not just the resurrection of the Christ, but a resurrection for us, the final day. And so they pretend, though, to ask Him a question about what the resurrection will be like. And they set up this silly... Uh, situation, this absurd situation that is meant to show the absurdity of this doctrine in their eyes. And here you need to understand something about what's called Levirate marriage. It has nothing to do with the Levitical priests. It was a command that Moses gave whereby if a man died, he was married and he died and he produced no offspring, his next brother or the closest person in his family was obligated then to take that woman as his wife And as you see here, to raise up offspring for him. That is to produce an heir. And that son then that was born would not be credited to the biological father. He would be credited to the other son who had died. And he would inherit all of that son's belongings. They said Moses commanded us to do this. So they create this tangled web of a situation where seven brothers each die in succession. They follow the law, but none of them produces an heir. And so what you have then is that uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a compounding problem. The second son didn't produce an heir for himself or for his brother, and so the third son now has to produce an heir for the second son and for the first brother, and he fails, and you see how tangled this web gets. So they want to know, in the resurrection, whose wife shall, will she be? No one has a greater claim than the other. To whom sh- will she be married? <clears throat> and what they have not paid attention to, or what they have not understood is that that's not what resurrection life is like. Jesus challenges them to see the way things truly are and the way things truly will be. They belong to this age. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. That's not the way life will be in the resurrection. Sometimes we, when a loved one passes away, we long to see that person. We long to be reunited with that person. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's also helpful to say, you know, the way things really are, you, some, many of us are married now. You won't be married in the resurrection. You won't be married to your spouse today in that new life. And that's okay. That life is going to be full of joy. And we together as, a, as the church of God from every place and every time, are we will be betrothed to Christ as the bride of Christ. That's what we look forward to, and that's what marriage points to. It points to a greater reality in the resurrection. But that that thing that is belonging to this age won't carry forward into the resurrection. That's what Jesus teaches them. And in so doing, He calls them to consider whether or not they will attain to that age. Those who are considered worthy, in verse 35, to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, they don't marry. They're not given in marriage. The question comes to us. How can we be counted worthy? Will we be counted worthy to attain to that age, to become sons of the resurrection, not just sons of this age, that is, belonging to this age? Because in that age, we will have bodies. We will not be able to die anymore. We will be equal in that strength and form to angels. In fact, we'll be over them as judges, but we'll be equal in terms of our incorruptibility and our immortality to angels as they are now. We will be embodied people living in a resurrection world, in a real creation, not just like spirit people living in this bland world on a cloud with a harp in our hand, but real people with real bodies in a real world, with mountains perhaps and rivers and who knows what glories await us, but it will be glorious. We will be there as embodied people if we are found in Christ by faith, if we are children of God. They didn't understand this about the resurrection, and so they thought the whole thing was silly. They thought that it was just going to be life as it was all over again. But Jesus calls them to see what resurrection life will really be like, and he calls them to see that there really is a resurrection. And amazingly, he points them back to the only books that they confess, Genesis through Deuteronomy. I remember reading this some years ago. A text I'd read many times before but. I, my, my jaw hit the floor, and I was just astounded. I could not put my finger on it, but I was astounded by the wisdom of Christ because I thought, in a million years, I will never say when someone says, how can you know there is a resurrection? Look at Exodus 3.6. But in his great wisdom, that's what Jesus did. And just this little phrase, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, What God called himself when he came to Moses and spoke to him out of the burning bush. And he couples that with a truth that we can see all the way from Genesis chapter 1 through 3 and all the way to the end of the scriptures. What do we know about God with relation to us? He is the God of life. Life comes from him. He gives life and he takes it away. Life is lost when we are separated from him. We may look alive. We may define it as life. Scientifically speaking, but biblically, it's not life when we are separated from him. As Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. As God said to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And they really did, for they were separated from him. Like a flower, severed from its root, may look like it's still alive, though it's really dead because it's separated from the source of life. So we are dead in separation from God. But God is the God of life. He is life. And all live to Him. Our life, that is to say, is in relation to God and that alone. If we live, it's because God willed us to live. And if we should live in the resurrection, it's because God willed us to live. Our life comes from Him and it is for Him and it is to Him. And he showed that when he said, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Those men had died hundreds of years prior. And what he's saying is, God would not say, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, if they really were dead. They're alive. Therefore, there must be a resurrection. God's word is true. Therefore, his promises to them must be fulfilled. And that, too, requires a resurrection. And so he put these questioners to silence showing them the way things really are, and the way God really is. And The scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. It's an amazing thing, and I want you to reckon with it right now. There is a resurrection. There is eternal life, but it is available only through Christ. If you have not trusted in Christ if you have not put your faith in him, if you have not believed that he died for you to pay your sin, your penalty for sin, that he did everything that is necessary and you can add nothing to it, and that he himself rose from the grave, believe now and have life in his name. It's available to you, but you must repent of your sin and believe this gospel. You say, how can I know that there is life? How can I know this is true? The answer is because He rose, and many eyewitnesses have testified to that fact. Hundreds of eyewitnesses saw the risen Christ, testified to the risen Christ. The scriptures foretold that he would rise, and he did it precisely as he himself foretold as well. These are strong and persuasive evidences that he really rose from the dead, and if he really rose from the dead, there is a resurrection, not just for him, but for you as well. And if you trust in him, Your resurrection will be one unto life in Christ and with Christ forever. So believe. Repent of your sin and believe this gospel and you will be saved both now and forever. There is a life to come. We share in it now. And we will fully know it then. It's a glorious message for us. Let us receive it. Now Jesus, as they... He puts them to silence. He now asks a question that they cannot answer. Verse 41, he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Here Jesus comes as the only one in this passage who is no pretender. He speaks about himself as the Christ, as one who really is or to be David's son. And yet there's a greater truth that that phrase cannot comprehend. He is not just David's son, he is David's Lord. And how can we make sense of that? He quotes Psalm 110 verse 1. And here David writes as Jesus says, And elsewhere we read, he writes in the Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord. That first term represents Yahweh. In the original Hebrew, it's Yahweh says to my Lord, my Master. What David saw and foretold, what he understood, at least in part, was that somehow the one God has a plurality of persons, that there is conversation that is happening between persons. One is speaking to another, and yet both are Lord. How can this be? In the fullness of time, we understand because God has shown Himself to be triune. He is one God, but He exists eternally in three persons in perfect union. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what do we see but the Father speaking to the Son and saying, sit at my right hand, at the position of privilege, at the position of authority, until something should take place. Until I put all of your enemies beneath your feet as a footstool. Until I subdue them, sit there, wait till this is completed, in other words. And all in the audience would have agreed with Jesus, this is about the Christ. But that puzzle, how can it be about the Christ if we know that the Christ is David's son? Sons don't call their fathers Lord, but here David calls his distant descendant Lord. It can only be true if we understand that he is not just a son of David, but he is the son of God. The very reason why he is Lord and can also speak and receive speech from the Lord is because of this truth that our God is eternally and forever Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father speaks to the Son and says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. At the very beginning of this passage which we saw last week, They came to him and said, By what authority do you do these things? But they were not willing to receive the answer. So Jesus would not tell them by what authority he did these things. But here he calls them to connect the dots on their own. By what authority? By the same authority that makes David call him Lord. By the authority of the Son of God. Jesus Christ is Lord. Not just of David. Not just of Israel. He is Lord of all because He is the Son of God. Therefore, there is hope for all who trust Him. But all who reject Him and oppose Him are His enemies, and they will be subdued. They will be placed under His feet. And yet they will someday confess that He is Lord of the glory of God the Father too. Let us recognize Him as so now. Let us confess Him as Lord. Let us believe in Him. And He will be a shield And a refuge for us. This is the urgent message at hand for us. Not a question about taxes. Not even a question about doctrine. A question about who Jesus is. And who we say he is. He is Lord of all. There's a day coming when he will stand from that seat. And he will come again. And all will bow before him and confess him as Lord. But let us not wait to that day lest we be found as His enemies. Let us call Him Lord. Let us receive His wisdom. Let us rejoice in His kingdom. And let us endure with faith until He comes. And so we will live as things really are, in light of things as they really are and as they really will be. And we will participate in that glory that is to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a joyful privilege to be assured by Your Son. That through faith in Him, we may be considered Your children. We may be counted as sons of the resurrection. And we may share in the glory of that life that is to come. Even now, we are taught, taught in Your Word that we share in that glory. Though we do not yet know it fully. Make us to believe it. Make us to trust it. And make us to see all things in terms of their relative worth, relative to these truths. Counting as urgent and important those things that relate to you and knowing you. and Counting as trivial those things that will surely pass away. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.